electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The market's in March. And whether a new month will bring new optimism or more pain for investors, we will ask the investment committee and joining me for the hour today, Bryn Talkington, Joe Terranova, and Jason Snipe. Let's see what we're doing in the markets now. Dow's good for about 66 points just after 12 noon here in the east. S&P giving back eight. NASDAQ is higher by some uh, 38 points, as you see as well. We're going to get to the investment committee and all of that in just a moment. But first, a halftime exclusive interview with David Einhorn. He is the co-founder and president of Greenlight Capital. He joins us live today. Welcome back. It's good to see you. It's good to see you, Scott. Thanks for having me. You bet. Um, And we're going to get to your performance in in 2022, which was absolutely off the charts in just a moment. But I want to start with getting your take on, on where we are in the markets now. You wrote in your investor letter, David, back in the fall of last year, quote, the correct posture is to be bearish on stocks and bullish on inflation. So what is your view today relative to what it was then? It's the same. I think we should be bearish on stocks and bullish on inflation. I think we've moved from uh, an economy that spent many years in secular deflation. And I think that we're now in an inflationary era. And I think we're at a time that you know, after a long period, which was very, very good for financial assets, but maybe not so good for, you know, Main Street, I think we're sort of in the reverse of that. I think we're in a policy now, which is probably pretty good for Main Street, but but uh, is going to be difficult and increasingly difficult for financial assets. You think we're still in the midst of this bear market that we've been into at a time when some are saying that we're actually in the early stages of a new bull market. How do you address that? Well, different people have different opinions, and they might be right. We'll see what happens over time. But you're, as I mentioned at the very top here, you are coming off a, a fabulous year, up 36.6% net of fees, uh, an astonishing, really, 51 points of, of alpha. It was the best year you've had in your macro portfolio. And, and one of your, your biggest winners plays off the view that you have in, in the market, a bet that rates would go higher, that inflation would increase more than, than people thought. Um, do you still have that bet on that rates are going to continue to move higher? And as we're having this conversation where you are watching a 10 year right it, you know, right on the doorstep of four percent again. Yes, I think that both long and short term rates are headed higher and, and probably higher than what uh, what people are expecting. To what degree? I mean, what what's the target in your mind that, that you think if they're already at the level in which, you know, I said to you now uh, a day when rates are moving higher, got the two year at 487, the 10 year right on the doorstep, as we said, of four, how much higher? Well, let's just think about the economy for a minute, if I could just take a, a step back. You know, we, we have right now is uh, a very strong economy. 
and we have a lot of employment and we have a bunch of inflation and we still have actually very stimulative fiscal and monetary policy. Let's just take fiscal first for a moment. It's very unusual to be running such large deficits at a time when employment is at or near full employment because this is when taxes are relatively high and social spending benefits are relatively low. And yet we're still running a really you know, big, uh, a big uh, deficit. And on the monetary side, the short rates are less than the inflation. So real rates are still negative at the, at the short end of the curve. And uh, you know, so that's kind of stimulative as well. What's also interesting, I think, that people don't really appreciate, and maybe the Fed doesn't even appreciate, is raising rates isn't necessarily going to slow the economy uh, in the way that people think that it is, because I think the relationship between rates and economic activity, it's, it's both nonlinear, and it, at some point, the sign flips. You know, I had a thesis that we wrote about maybe more than a decade ago called Jelly Donut Monetary Policy, which basically said that beyond a certain point, once you continue cutting rates, you actually slow the economy because people have uh, the household sector is interest rate sensitive. So when you take rates down, savers lose income. It's maybe good for financial speculation, but it doesn't, it doesn't help people's real personal incomes. And then when you flip that, which is what's happening now, it actually strengthens the consumer position. Most of their borrowings are long-term fixed in mortgages, and their assets, their, their savings-type assets, money market-type assets, are variable. And so now you can get 5% or whatever risk-free in the bank account. That's like new income. And who's funding that on the other side? Well, that's the federal government because they're having to pay more interest on the, on the on the deficit. So actually, in a way, it's a fiscal raising rates from very low levels. It's actually a fiscal stimulus, and I think that's why people are surprised that the the economy is as strong as it is, despite the fact that rates have come up some. Hmm. Do you think the stock market is underappreciating what still lies ahead from the Fed? I mean, the conversation in the market for many months has been clearly the the stock market seems disconnected from the bond market or at least where you know the fed funds were, were heading it seems like fed funds the bond market's more in line where the fed is do you think that the stock market is now coming more into line and do you, do you still think a, a disconnect exists well i think we created a very bifurcated stock market because we spent six years basically putting value investors or people who care about financial statements you know out of business and so you wound up with a group of stocks, which essentially nobody cares about, nobody follows, they're boring, uh, and they're very, very cheap. Index funds don't like them because, you know, they have low weightings relative to market cap, relative to their size. And people who invest based on what things are worth basically faced redemptions. The money was redeployed into index funds. It was redeployed into, you know, innovation funds. Uh, it was it was redeployed. At some point, they all got together and said, hey, look, people who are short, really bad companies. Let's all go buy those and put them out of business for their short positions. So we, we spent an amount of time putting people who care about financial analysis, you know, out of business, taking their money away. And so you have a large segment of the market where really nobody's paying attention. And these stocks are extremely cheap and nobody cares and nobody's going to care. But yet it's a really attractive spot to invest because the valuations are so low and the companies can return so much capital to you that you're really being paid on a multi-year basis to, to wait in, in some of these boring businesses, which is kind of like what my portfolio is. On the other side, we basically had a big speculative bubble 
where you know uh, things of, of little value went up to really, really high prices, and people got really enthusiastic about that. And, and that bubble's in the process still of deflating. And so I think there's really more to go on, on, on both sides of that. There's a lot to get into in, in that one you know, comment that you made, but you, you really are addressing something that I wanted to get into, and that is the future of value investing, your bread and butter, bottoms up investing, in which you write in your most recent letter to start out the year, quote, value investing as an industry is unlikely to ever fully recover. Why do you think that? Well, I don't mean value investing as a strategy is unlikely to do well, but as an industry, it's dead. The money has moved from value investors into index funds, and it's it's not coming back. And people who used to be able to charge a management fee and have a staff of research analysts and used to get money every month to invest in new ideas, you know, that's been switched to eight basis point index funds. Or where they have kept their mandates, the fees have been cut by half. And so what happens is, is the research staffs get fired. And where are they going to get fired? Well, they're going to get fired in the really boring parts. They'll keep all the AI analysts and software as a service analysts. And, you know, instead of having five financial sector analysts, you'll have one. And then they have to cover, like, way more than they can. And so a huge segment of the market, there's just essentially nobody paying uh, any attention to. And that's not going to reverse. But for me, I see that as the opportunity because there's just much less competition for investing in these ideas. And, um, and I think we're actually positioned as a strategy to do very well after a period that was extraordinarily difficult. I mean, part of, part of the reason the period was extraordinarily difficult is because with the Fed stimulating everything, the market for the most part, you know, despite some, you know, valleys here and there went essentially uh, straight up. Now, given the kind of disconnected market that we've been in for the last, let's call it 12 months now plus, some would suggest that active management is going to make uh, a big return over the kind of passive investing that you're citing right now. Would you agree with that? Well, I don't blame the Fed for everybody switching from active management to passive management. There was a really good theory from a long time ago. You know, you can get the index return, you save taxes, you save transaction costs. People got on board for that and a lot of money moved. And I think that could have happened with low rates or high rates. I don't I don't think the Fed killed the value investing industry. I think the consultants, uh, you know, did that and the investor behavior moved towards, you know, lower cost, uh, you know, lower transaction fee structures. And to an extent, it's not, a, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It creates a lot of weirdness in the economy because the idea of passive investing is, is, well, you're a price taker. You know, let everybody else figure out what the price is and you just go along. But if all the money is going into passive, well, then the passive funds become the price, uh, the price makers. So the overvalued thing, which is overweighted in the index, gets more new money and that actually becomes the dominant driver of the performance so instead of them taking the price they're making the price and so they're getting a distortion that ultimately probably will work uh, will work against them in terms of switching back to active i mean there, there's so many different active strategies some will do well some some won't do well i actually think you know, when we were doing badly, I, I wasn't running around saying this is a great time to invest in what we're doing. But right now, um, I think the, the wind is now more at our back. And um, and I think we're we are performing well. And I, I think we're likely to continue to. How are you positioned on that note um, right now in terms of the shorts relative to longs in your book? 
you know, it's almost even. We're always net long, and so we're net long by a relatively small amount. I have a pretty conservative view towards which way the overall market will go, but I'm, I'm very excited about a number of the positions in my long portfolio because they're, they're just ridiculously um, inexpensive and returning tons of capital. I want to I get to some of those names, too, uh, coming up, but what do you make more broadly of the rally that we've had since the beginning of the year, since it almost flies right in the face of what happened in 2022 in terms of the playbook that worked last year hasn't worked, at least through January. Now, February obviously, you know, had a more of a reversion back to some of the strategies that did work. But what do you make of what you saw rise to start the beginning of this year? More heavily shorted names, more of the highly speculative names that you spoke about a moment ago. Well, things don't go one way. And last year we had two sharp bear market rallies, and this is a third one. And in, and if the bear market is going to continue, it probably won't be the last one. There'll probably be others, and they will tend to go farther than people think going in. And so it makes sense when things are going your way on the short side to you know maybe cover a little bit. And when things, that way you have a ability when things go the other way to um, to add to positions a little bit. You know, I, I can't help but, but notice from reading your letter, um, and you say straight up, quote, we're nothing if not persistent, at least as it relates to the so-called bubble basket stocks that you have uh, leaned against for an, a number of years. You now have what I guess is your fifth bubble basket, as you call it, with 31 names in it. You established it a little more than a year ago. Is, is that still in place today? Yes. And what kinds of stocks are we are we generally speaking of? Are, are are they from the realm of, you know, high growth, higher valuation? Give us a little flavor. I know you're not going to talk about individual shorts, for example. You can you make that clear. But can you give us and our viewers a sort of general perspective of the kind of names that you've looked at and the reasons that you now have a fifth bubble basket? Yeah, they tend to be um, profitless tech type companies that traded, um, you know, values based on future, you know, hopes. A lot of times the companies don't count their stock uh, compensation as an expense, whereas, you know, the investors in the company suffer the dilution every year from that. And then if they take their cash and use it to repurchase stock, it's really hard to understand why that's not an expense. So I look at those things on an economic basis. And so there's a lot of companies that really aren't generating very much economic value, probably are destroying value, and they still trade at pretty, uh, pretty fancy values. You know, many of those um, seem to have found their way into the Kathy Wood universe. You write in your January letter to kick the year off here. In 2021, we also identified an actively managed ETF of so-called innovation stocks that appeared to us to have significantly similar characteristics to our bubble names. We shorted a basket comprised of the components of that ETF in February of 21. It has declined by 76%. You invested a large amount of capital, 9% of your capital. It's a pretty big bet. Is that still in place? Yes. And what do you make? It's not, I think some it's, would not at that, it's not at that size because it's gone down, so it gets smaller. Sure, but I think people would look at that and say that that looks like a direct shot at, at Kathy Wood and, and her investing strategy, as we call it. How would you address that? Yeah, I'm not going to get into a personal discussion of other market participants. 
Well, I mean, in a sense, though, you are investing completely against that specific strategy. I mean, you know, I think anybody can look at an actively managed ETF of so-called innovation and, and think of that. Do, do you think the strategy itself of betting big on those innovation names is flawed? I, I think that, look, I'm, I'm a traditional kind of guy, and I think that stocks, companies, stocks are worth something relating to their future earnings discounted back for risk and time and so forth. And I think that in the bubble that we just went through, I think a lot of investors have lost focus on that. I think most people in the market right now, they either cannot do valuation, they, they, they choose not to do valuation, or structurally they're valuation and agnostic. So there's very few investors that actually care about valuation, which kind of leaves us, I don't want to say alone, but with a lot less competition than we had you know, 10 or 15 years ago. What do you make of the AI frenzy that's really seem, seemed to have captivated investors to start off this year? It is that new buzzword, you know, in 2000 it was eyeballs and then through the speculative period of the last few years it was total addressable market. Now everything seems to be about AI. How does somebody like you view that? Yeah, I don't really have an opinion. I'm sure the technology is really exciting, and I'm sure great things will come from it. We're not really invested long in, in AI companies, and, and I can't really, you know, so I don't really have a lot to say about it. You know, you, you do acknowledge um, in, your, in your letter, and, and you alluded to it here in, in some respects, how difficult the past handful of years has been for the strategy of yours. You wrote, quote, we're probably not as smart as we appeared in 2022, but we're probably not as dumb as we appeared in 2018 either. We're grateful for those who have stuck with us. However, most have not stuck with us and understandably so. You called the outflows that you've had debilitating, said it was challenging to remain as disciplined as you have, and that you just simply refused to make the kind of investments that didn't make sense to you. I'm just wondering, you know, for somebody who's done this as long as you have, how difficult it has been to stay away from the kind of investments that seem to be, you know, in the, in the lights, the marquee type investments to stay true to the strategy that you have, no matter what the outcome was going to be. You know, um, look, we had a very difficult period. There's, there's no question about it. I, I can't tell you how many people uh, that I know, some of whom I'm very close with, suggested that maybe it would be a good time to retire and, and stop doing this. And when you're, when you're like not doing well for a sustained period of time, it's certainly easy to understand why somebody would think that. Um, our investing record isn't perfect. We even at some points probably invested in a couple of things that in hindsight probably didn't make that much sense or we should have sold it at earlier, earlier at lower, you know, at higher prices before they, they fell. You know, so it's, it's not like, you know, we were 100% doing exactly, you know, what, what, uh, what I wish we had done. Um, that being said, I enjoy the challenge every day. And I think it's a fascinating environment. I think it's a fascinating market. I'm very feel very lucky to be able to do what I do every day. I think it it's way better than many many other jobs. And so I'm excited to you know to have the challenge and um, we, we, and, and 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 to, to stick with it. We we have a debate all all the time. In, in a sense, you know, don't fight the Fed, right? It it works for you on the way up, and certainly. Don't fight the Fed has worked over the last year. And then you saw that obviously as clear as many others who did quite well throughout, 
you know, 2022 managed somehow to navigate was what was a really difficult market. You knew that rates were going to go up. You knew that the Fed was was going to be as aggressive uh, as they were. Um, do you think in, in some respects, as you you know, reflect on, on that period of time that it just is boiled down to don't fight the Fed. When you're injecting so much liquidity into the system, things are going to go up. When you're pulling liquidity out of the system like the Fed is right now, things are going to go down. It's really not that difficult. Well, the Fed does want stock prices lower. They've made that clear. Somehow they think if after watching the stock market go up, I don't know, seven or eight times, seven or eight fold over maybe 15 years, you know, they think if the market went down 15 percent, everybody would feel poor and the economy would slow and it would spoil Christmas. And that seems to be the way that they're conducting monetary policy. Uh, I think it would be better if they cared less about the stock market in, in either direction. But they certainly spent a long time seeming to want to drive it higher. And, and now they seem to want it to go lower. And the market, at least for the time being, is, is mostly cooperating. Do you really think that's part of their strategy is, is they want to hit risk assets even more than perhaps they already have? Well, they talk about it as tightening financial conditions. And so I, I think that phrase is mostly about the stock market. I mean, theoretically, it should be about the credit markets, but I don't really think that that's really where, I mean, I don't think that's really where their focus is. Were you surprised then in the last Fed meeting and the news conference where the, the chair himself, I mean, he had an opportunity to talk about financial conditions, um, he, didn't, he didn't go there. He could have, he could have hit that, that hard. He did not. And some people really focused on that and thought that's one of the reasons why the stock market rose uh, out of that Fed meeting. You know, look, I think the inflation story is really very complicated because people try to boil it all down to one number, but it's actually lots of different things. You know, like if something goes up like 500%, that's not because of monetary policy. Right. So if lumber goes from 400 to 2000 or whatever it did a couple of years ago, or you saw it in some of the other commodities and, you know, air freight shipping rates and stuff like that, that's not monetary policy. That's a shortage or a bottleneck. And they used to say a couple of years ago, oh, that's transitory. Well, of course, it's transitory. It may not have been as transitory as they thought. But there's another aspect of inflation, which is less transitory. Right. Which is stuff like you go to the dentist and he charges you more to clean your teeth. And there's a lot of that in the economy, too. And the problem is, is when you look at a single number or a series of numbers, you know, it all kind of gets mishmashed into, you know, a single figure. And I, I think that the Fed right now is taking a lot of confidence that some of the stuff that really was transitory, but it was transitory to, you know, later than they thought that it would be, is coming down. And they think they sort of have the inflation situation sort of under control. But the, the parts that's not transitory, which is more structural, well, that, that seems to be very much in, in, in place. And so I, I think the Fed will have more to, more to have to do if they're going to get, get a handle on that. On that note, let's do some stock picking. Let's talk about some of the names that you like best. You established a new what you called medium-sized long position in Tenet Healthcare in the fourth quarter. Tell me why. Tenet Healthcare, it's a hospital operator. They ran into some trouble last year, uh, labor shortages, they missed earnings and so forth. And we looked at it and saw that um, the, the multiple was in the single digits. The business to us appears to be relatively uh, stable and recession resistant. I mean, I think people go to the hospital and get sick either way. 
and um, you had a company that was now beginning to really return capital to shareholders. I think they had a billion dollar buyback against a six billion dollar market cap. And so when you see that kind of uh, opportunity, we, we took a, a medium sized position. Hmm. Atlas Worldwide, uh, it was a pretty good winner for you, I understand, last year. Is that a name you're still long? No, it's being sold. and it, 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 uh, We sold it last year. I think they're going private as part of a deal. And when that deal was announced, we moved on to the next thing. Gotcha. What's, but what about Consol Energy? Consol Energy is, well, everybody hates coal. So here's the story, right? The company has no debt. It's worth about $2 billion. They're going to have, there's one analyst who covers the, the, the company. I think they're going to have about $800 or $900 million of free cash flow this year possibly the same amount again the following year. So pretty much the free cash flow is going to equal the whole value of the company between this year and next year. They have no debt. And so we expect that they're going to be buying back and returning that capital. So within a couple of years, we expect to get pretty much all of our money back. And they'll still have resources. Oh, forgive me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And they'll still have 30 years of reserves of coal in the, in, in the ground. How about tech resources? The name is still long? Yes, we're, we still long tech resources. They just did something really very interesting, which is they're going to divide their met coal business from their metals business. And they did it in a, through a spinoff, but they did it in a really clever way where most of the cash flows for the next number of years are still going to go to the metal business, even though they're going to come from the, the met coal business. And I think that, uh, you know, if we're going to have all of this electrification, we're going to need a lot more copper. And that's really where the metals piece of the business is. It trades at a you know, at a, at a not exciting high single digit uh, multiple of earnings. And I think that there's very little copper supply coming on over the intermediate term. You know, it takes seven or so years to develop a full scale copper mine. And, you know, after Tech Resources brings a new mine uh, online li literally this quarter, there's really not going to be much new supply for several years. And so if we're going to have all these electric vehicles and stuff like that, we're going to need a lot more copper. So I'm very bullish on copper prices over the intermediate term. And I think that tech resources will be a, a good beneficiary of that. You know, you mentioned, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, because I know you think about this kind of thing, uh, just like another value investor does, maybe the world's most famous one in Warren Buffett. When you mentioned uh, Tenet, one of the things that you like there is a, is a buyback, how, you know, there's been a war on buybacks, I think we can, can say. And, you know, the Oracle of Omaha weighed in in their investor letter um, the other day calling the people who criticized them economic illiterates. you have a view on, on buybacks? I, uh, I think buybacks are, are, there's two types of buybacks, right? There's the buybacks where the company has extra profits and they want to return it to shareholders and they want to do, and the valuation of the stock they feel is undervalued and they think they can create value for existing and continuing shareholders by repurchasing some of the shares, thereby shrinking the number of shares outstanding and giving everybody an opportunity to own more of the company without having to put more money into the company. I think those buybacks are great. There's another kind of buyback, which is you have stocks which trade at really, really high prices and they pay their people in in stock and they try not to count the earnings, but to try to reduce the dilution, they take their cash flow and buy the overvalued stock. I think that that kind of buyback is is less uh, desirable. Hmm. Um, leave me with a thought, if you would, on on Twitter uh, before I let you go, because you did make an investment in it last year. It was a big winner for you. Uh, it was basically an arb play, right? You were you were betting that the deal was going to have to go go through at fifty four twenty. 
uh, which obviously we know now it, it did. Why did you make that bet in that in that name when you did? You have obviously had a long and sometimes public history with Elon Musk. Well, we looked at it and essentially from where we when we entered the position at about 38 and this was at the time when Mr. Musk wanted to get away from the deal. Um, there was $16 or so of upside. And we thought if the deal didn't happen, you know, maybe it would fall $15. So it was like even up and down. And as we looked at the law and we looked at the contract, we thought he had a binding enforceable contract that would likely be enforced by a court. And so we thought that the risk reward was really favorable. And, um, and that, that turned out to be correct. And you, had, you joked in the letter that you haven't been kicked off the platform yet. Uh, are you still on it today? I am. I, I rarely tweet much, but uh, my, my account seems to be in good status. Yeah. All right. You know what? That's a good place to leave it. David, I so much appreciate your time. You're generous with it today. We'll talk to you soon, I hope. Thanks so much. Nice. Thanks. Nice to see you. And thanks for having me on. All right. That's David Einhorn of Greenlight Capital. He is the co-founder, of course, and the president there. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We've got the investment committee waiting. We're going to weigh in on all that David Einhorn had to say in that exclusive interview. We'll do it next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Back on the half, let's go through some of those David Einhorn headlines uh, with the investment committee. Joe, I, I just turned to you first. I mean, what was your your big takeaway? He's obviously still bearish. He thought rates were were still going to go up, and we're just in another bear market rally. As much as I'm excited to contribute to the show today, I wanted the interview to last a little bit longer. It was fascinating. Great job. We learned a lot. His explanation of price taking versus price making. That's the most simple and efficient explanation of passive investing I think I've ever heard. Uh, it was phenomenal. A lot of the stocks that he's invested in, really interesting, because when you think about a value investor, you think about a value investor and you think about a stock that's probably at the lower end of its five-year range. But no, that's not the case. Tenant Healthcare pull up a chart over the last five years. You'll see the stock has made a nice recovery, trades at a reasonable valuation. Tech Resources, I mean, that's a name I love. If you're going to talk to me about copper, I obviously own Freeport McMoran. The same could be said over the last five years. It's a stock with a reasonable valuation that's shown good support 
uh, Chinese Investment Corp, by the way, has a 10% stake in tech resources. So fantastic interview. He gave some great stocks for the viewers and really resourceful information. Hey, Bryn, you know, I, I go to you um, for the simple reason that, as he said, you know, he has his fifth so-called bubble basket uh, with 30 plus, you know, names in it of some of the stocks that, you know, you've invested in over the last handful of, of years since we've known each other and you've been on this this program. I'm just curious what, what you make of how he described that area of the market, the opportunity that he clearly still sees existing in it. I think it's twofold. I think what he said that was so important is that We've had this incredibly long period of deflationary, a deflationary period. And now we've entered into a new regime of an inflationary period, which actually plays really well into how he looks at companies and his, his way of value type investing. So, so before I get into some of those names and thoughts, I, I just want to expand on this because I think that investors that are continuing to wait for this V-shaped recovery, we're going to race to all-time highs, just don't understand that we're in this different environment where the Fed is raising rates, we've got money markets at almost 5%, the you know, 5%, and we've got high multiples. Those are not ingredients for a banner year. And so I think as it relates to some of the names that he's shorting, maybe some of the names in Kathy Wood, that makes sense to me that he would be doing that because number one, he's a value investor and he's saying, hey, this has gotten too crazy. But number two, and I think equally important, Scott, he's talking about this longer term, more inflationary backdrop, and that's where other types of stocks will do well. And so I think he's spot on in terms of saying, hey, my type of positioning, I think, is, is has, has, potentially has years to come of upside. But some of these stocks, I mean, Zoom's a good example. Their stock-based compensation from that earnings report is really kind of bananas, right? And so when I read Zoom's earnings and I listened to, you know, David talk about stock-based compensation, that to me is a little bit befuddling as an investor of, hey, how do you value that? So it was definitely a treat to get to hear him, but I do think this, this longer inflation for, for longer is important for investors to structure a portfolio around. What about, Jason, this, you know, the notion that the the not the strategy, but the industry of value investing is is dead, that it's not going to recover, that, you know, the money flows are all going towards passive indices or theme investing. Uh, and it's it's narrowed the number of people uh, in total who are doing bottoms up stock picking for a variety of reasons, including the ones that that I just mentioned. Their money's going elsewhere. Yeah, I think it's I think it's super interesting. And and for me, listening to David talk, I think um, we're not necessarily entailed for a renaissance um, in value investing. From my perspective, I think one of the things that really resonated with me in what he just said is interest rates are not necessarily linear to economic growth and in our activity. And obviously, the Fed is using the blunt tool that they need to. We saw ISM prices. Uh, coming a little hot today. Uh, we saw PCE last week that was that was hot, um, and then PPI and CPI numbers um, that that are decelerating, but not decelerating at the pace that I think that the market um, is interested in and, and really values. So, 
Um, I can appreciate the, the, the value trade, I think, as, as rates remain high um, and continue to move uh, higher. I, I think that that trade could work. And obviously, growth growth has been the story in the, in the first half of the year. But I think with some volatility ahead, I can see value continue to work. I, mean, I guess, you know, and I'm glad, you know, David made the distinction between the strategy of value investing, value versus growth and whatever, um, and then the industry itself, where the industry has has gone the way that flows find their way into the market. I'm just curious as to you know the position that you're in now with Virtus, the way you think about that issue. I was remarkably impressed with his humility, his humility surrounding the challenged conditions for value over the last several years and the challenge conditions for his performance and his commitment to the discipline of staying with the strategy. He was humble about it. He wasn't arrogant, and a lot of times you see when performance is against the strategy, you'll see the arrogance come forth. And I don't think that's the way that any of us should be conducting ourselves as stewards of capital and money managers. Hey, Bryn, you know, it's timely that Marco Kalanovic of J.P. Morgan has put out a note regarding value versus growth. He, of course, J.P. Morgan, in which he says value versus growth, has the run has stalled this year. The next trade is likely to go outright underweight value. Value over growth factor dispersion will be much less powerful this year in, in our view. Uh, that's a pretty provocative thought. You want to take that on? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, first of all, obviously, Mark is bearish. He thinks that, you know, I think the S&P is about two and a half standard deviations overvalued where it should be versus bonds. So he's, he's negative from that point. I think when you look at value, you also have to think about what makes up the value index. I mean, financials are a big part of that. And so I think that when, when you break down the sector, you really have tech on the growth side and financials on the value side. And so I do think as we're later stage economic cycle, if we go into a recession, guess what doesn't do well? Financials, right? And so, so I don't know if that's, the, that's where he was drawing the line to, but as I think that through, that's where I do think value in general, when I'm looking at the sector, that financial overweight in that, to me, is not something I, we, are, we are very underweight financials and wouldn't want to be that way going, going into this like potentially slowing economy later on in the year. All right. Uh, we're going to slip in a quick break. Uh, actually, you know what? Let's get the headlines first with Contessa Brewer. Pardon me, Contessa. That's okay, Scott. How are you, everybody? It's uh, the CNBC News update now. No evidence here uh, that the Havana syndrome, has, which has been blamed for sickening U.S. personnel at the U.S. Embassy in Cuba and other places around the world, is the result of a foreign adversary's actions. NBC News reports that is the conclusion of a years-long effort by U.S. intelligence agencies to explain what caused the strange and painful acoustic sensations for hundreds of Americans serving abroad. Many of the victims have suspected Cuba, China, or Russia of using some kind of energy wave against them. The CDC is warning of a serious public health threat from a rise in drug-resistant cases of the bacterial infection Shigella, a major cause of inflammatory diarrhea. And the northern lights are burning bright over Anchorage, Alaska, those lights, of course, tied to solar activity as charged particles in solar wind collide with molecules in the Earth's upper atmosphere. And because that activity is rising now as part of an 11-year cycle, scientists say there's more to come. I feel like I've branched over and I could now do a children's show on science, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Contessa, thank you. 
Contessa Brewer. We will slip in that quick break. Straight ahead, our chart of the day, a read on the consumer. Yet another one this week in a busy week of them. The home improvement stock moving lower today on soft sales. Jason Snipe owns it. The trade next. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Talk about our chart of the day now. Lowe's, those shares are falling after the company reported a revenue miss, gave weaker than expected sales guidance as well. Jason Snipe, there it is, uh, right in your face here, down more than five and a half percent. What do we do here? Yeah, yeah. So it's obviously the price action is not great uh, today. So uh, for me, I think, you know, as it relates to Lowe's print today, one of the things that's really impressive to me as it relates to the print is Pro is up 10%. You know, Marvin Ellison has really worked on diversifying their business and really operate, getting this business operationally sound. You know, sales were up 5.2%. Inventories are still up around 5.3%, but not 18% in, in quarters that we've seen. So the remodeling index suggests that we should see some growth here around 14% in Q2. Yes, a soft guy, but really in line with what we saw from HD. So I still continue to like this stock. It's trading at 14 times earnings, which is discount to the market You don't here. think the ship has sailed on home improvement stocks for the, for the near future? I mean, one month the stocks have gotten clobbered over every metric literally that I have on my page in front of me is negative. Now, I'm not going back, you know, five years or anything like that, but one month, three months, six months, year to date, one year from 52-week high. I mean, it's been pretty ugly post, post on the other side of the pandemic. Agreed. And I, and I think for me, as it relates to when I think, think about interest rates and the difficulty of moving and where housing has, how, how housing has come down, I still think there's some activity here um, that we'll see in Q2. But for me, you know, going into the second half of the year, it's likely something will trim back down. All right. Quick break. Then Bryn making a few moves in her portfolio we need to tell you about. We'll do that next. All right, Brent, let's get to some of your moves today. You sold the LIT, that's the lithium and battery ETF. You bought Albemarle and SQM. Talk to us. Yeah, so I've owned LIT for a long time. It's global, it's lithium and battery. I sold it not because I don't like lithium, is because it has a lot of ordinary shares that are, that are Chinese, which is perfectly fine because that's where lithium is. Mind, I wanted to own the more explicit exposure there, as I believe this, as we've talked about a bunch, this electrification of everything, you're going to need a lot of lithium. Albemarle is based in the U.S. I think that will continue to have t- tailwinds. SQM or Sociedad Química, it's a Chilean-based lithium miner. It's one of the preeminent lithium miners in the world. It has a 15% free cash flow and around an 8% distribution yield. So, you know, I've talked about a lot about free cash flow. I love that high free cash flow. I think it's got really nice upside. And so I wanted to own those two names instead of having that diversified ETF to continue to play that long-term secular trend in the electrification of, of the globe. Okay, up next, activists, as you know, and many of them turning up the heat on Salesforce, that company now gearing up for earnings and overtime tonight. We have what we call the setup when halftime returns. 
Activist activity and Salesforce heating up. According to our own David Faber and his new reporting, Elliott Management has now nominated a slate for the company's board of directors. That news coming just ahead of Salesforce's earnings in overtime tonight. Shares rallying nearly 25% into that print. Options activity signaling another big move when those numbers hit the tape in just a few hours' time. Let's get to Blue Line Capital's Bill Baruch with what we're calling now the setup. What do you see? Thanks, Judge. You know, I don't have any skin in this game at the moment, but I'm watching the activity closely, see if there's any edge heading into the bell. You know, right now, the implied move is about 12 bucks or 7%. The put-call ratio is up to about 0.75. We've actually today have seen more of an equal number of puts and calls being purchased, lifting that ratio up. And this call call activity has been a little more speculative. You had a 190 strike for expiration of uh, on March 17th, has gotten 2,484 contracts as of uh, about 11 a.m. this morning. But the put activity seems a little more protective because you have a 155 strike for March 17th, getting about 2,197 contracts, uh, put contracts as of 11 a.m. this morning. Good stuff, Bill. Thanks for the setup. We'll talk to you soon. So, Jason Stipe, I mean, you sold this towards the end of last year. Who knows what we're going to get associated with the, the call today, but the Elliott step up, as we want to we'll put it that to Faber's reporting, just how you thinking about this whole thing now? Yeah, I mean, for me, as it relates to Salesforce, Salesforce is just an expensive stock. I mean, last year is trading at 45 times. I know the multiple has come down. It's down at around 28 times. Uh, there's also some challenges in, in, in deals getting done. The timeline has it has dramatically increased over the last year. Um, I think that's an issue. And it's also expensive to enterprise. This is this is not a, a cheap multiple, I mean, vertical for, for a lot of companies and, and to, to engage in. So I'm, I'm staying put right now. There, there's there's a lot of activists in there. They're focusing on efficiency and profitability. Let's see what happens in you, the next you quarter. You bounced uh, in early 21, right? You've been out of this for a while. Quite some time. Not looking to get back in. This is going to be a tough quarter. Revenue growth is probably going to be the weakest quarter that Salesforce has experienced. Margins are going to matter here. They have an operating margin target for 2026 of 25%. Can they pull that forward, meet it sooner, and comfort some of the activists? And I think that's the real story on the earnings conference call. How does Mark Benioff respond to the pressure from five very large activists? I'm looking forward to that as well. Final trades are coming up next. Got a lot coming up, 3 o'clock Eastern time, closing bell. Eric Jackson with me, along with Adam Parker. We're going to walk you right up to Tesla's Investor Day. That's highly anticipated. And then, of course, Salesforce, those earnings in overtime. So we're going to get you set up for all of that. And, of course, we're going to get more into the future of value investing. Look forward to you joining me just a few hours from back a couple hours from now. Let's do final trades. Bryn, what do you have? Perfect. Uh, BSEP. It's an innovator buffer ETF. It gives you exposure to the S&P, but with guardrails. So real simple, you have 8.5% downside protection with here on the SPY, but you also get upside to about 490 on the SPY. This one would expire. The put call spread inside of that would expire at the end of August. So I think a great risk return in a short amount of time. All right. Jason Snipe. 
I like AutoZone here. They had a really strong print, uh, trading at a market multiple, over 5% free cash flow yield. There's a lot of senior vehicles on the road. Stay long this night. All right, Joe T. Quite a different market from when I woke up at 3 a.m. and the Chinese economic growth was lifting the futures. Mm -hmm. The way the played at is through Yum China, Y-U-M-C. It is a holding in Joe T. recently established at the end of January. Let's throw up the 10-year yield, uh, guys, if, if we could back at our headquarters just to take a look because we did bump right at, at 4%. And that's a level that's going to be closely watched, right? We haven't closed above that or at that level uh, since November. Uh, so we got to watch that. There it is, 399. I'll see a closing bell. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.